Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Sunday morning, another Sunday morning at Soho Radio with uh, Vasiliki and John. And today our guest is sculptor Richard Wilson. Richard, thank Good you morning. very much. Good morning. A rather soggy Soho this morning, unfortunately. So yeah, we're very pleased to have Richard on today. Um, internationally acclaimed sculptor and architectural tamperer. Uh, well known for the only permanent installation at the Saatchi Gallery, the uh, 2050 oil installation. And you may have seen that amazing coach teetering on the edge of the Delaware Pavilion a few years ago for the 2012 Cultural Olympiad. That was one of yours, Richard. Yes, it was. It was part of the, uh, as you say, Cultural Olympiad uh, pro regional programme. Uh, but it started off as a request from the late uh, Alan Hayden, the, the then director of the beautiful Delaware Pavilion. Uh, it was the second in a series of rooftop pieces, the first one by Anthony Gormley. Mm. Uh, and he used the, uh, the walkway out on the roof. And I therefore had to think about of another space. I didn't want to use the space that he'd used um, and chose to animate the edge of the building. Yes, and animate it you did. And I was looking at the catalogue of your career and thinking, what does the phrase, it can't be done, mean to you? And how often has that been the start of a conversation rather than the end of one? Well, I, s I suppose I spent a career um, doing two words. Uh, um, basically, I try and do what I can't do. Um, that's the thing that excites me. I, it wouldn't be worth doing if I knew I could do it. So one starts playing with and tampering with ideas, uh, and the more they become not necessarily difficult, but more they become intriguingly uh, curious to uh, achieve, the more I get a kick out of trying to get them done. That's not to say the larger pieces are more exciting to do. No. I mean, a thimble-sized piece can be as exciting, uh, depending on the three things that you have to overcome. One would be money, one would be you know, technology or skill technique. Uh, the other one would be overcoming bureaucracy. That can be yes. a problem. Yes. Which one has been the longest period of time that, we that you worked on a project to make it happen? I think a very recent piece. It's a very large piece. It's 77 metres long. It's 78 tonnes. It's located in the new Terminal 2, the Queen's Terminal, yeah. at Heathrow. Mm -hmm. And that took three and a half years. That's from the point of interview to the opening. Uh, and that's really working like an architect in a timescale because you've got to have the idea quite early on. And then what you do is you put, in, you put the team together, you get all the designing done by the engineers, and then you follow it through with the manufacturer. And all of that three years, within that, you have crisis because you, you get to the point where you think, well, why have I done that? I should have done it like this. Could I, it's too late to change it. You know, I look stupid trying to change it. It alters the budget, et cetera, et cetera. With that, well, I was fortunate. I mean, it, it, it was right at its concept stage. We, we delivered it for the interview. We got the gig. And it was just bliss for three, three and a half years, really. I enjoyed it very much. A lot of travelling up to Hull, where it was manufactured, uh, and a lot of negotiating with various bodies. I mean, we met all sorts of people. There's a lot of logistics, putting something into an airport. You've got to overcome all yeah, sorts health, of, health you know, terrorist imagine, problems, yeah, etc. 
Um, so we had to have sections blown up to make sure to watch how they behave, etc. You know, I so think, oh, okay, I, I never thought that it would <laughs> go that far. I always think that piece, Slipstream, is one of those you want to see when you're arriving at Heathrow and not when you're departing. It's essentially <laughs> a, a plane doing a barrel roll out of control. <laughs> Inside a building, yes. Uh, it's interesting, yeah. I mean, if you can take the concept that the aeroplane is actually just an object and you're treating the object as a shape in space. I mean, I always said to understand the piece of work, if you can imagine... Uh, fictitious scenario and I said this at the interview if you imagine filling Tate Modern turbine hall with clay and you pick an object up and you throw it through that clay with this almighty power that you have in your arm it will carve a hole through that clay then what you do is you turn the turbine hall up on end and you fill it full of plaster you excavate back the clay and you're given a shape and that's really what it was but the more practical things you say interview would be things like you know this will be a you know, a, this is a cultural gateway into London. You've got to have something at the airport. And that's the sort of thing that sells those kind of big pieces. Let's go to the doors and Roadhouse Blues and back with Richard Wilson in a few seconds. <laughs>
we're back with Richard Wilson. And Richard, on the Royal Academy side, you have a statement saying that um, one of your aims is to unsettle or break people's preconceptions. How do you do that or how you attempt to do that? I think the way I try and do that is you try and pick something that you think you know. And the best way of doing that is picking something in the world of objects that exist, you know, ships, boats, planes, uh, buildings. And you think you know these things and you tweak it in some kind of way. So what you do is you open other, you challenge people's preconceptions of that object. And the object is a metaphor for the way you look at, look at your world, basically. So as a sculptor, I can take oil and I can have that cleaned. Uh, it doesn't lose its color. It's still black. It's got the burnt graphite in it. And I can pour that into a pristine white space. And people will go in and talk about that with notions of beauty. Uh, whereas if you see that on the news, on a sea, being washed up on a beach, seagulls blackened, yeah. your concept of it is very different. Yeah. Uh, you'd be arrested for pouring it down a drain. Even synonymous And yet death. I've challenged not just the architecture by doubling it like the TARDIS, the interior becomes something that you thought you knew and it's not any longer clear. But you've also taken an oil that people have fought wars over and you've used that as a sculptural material, which is a challenge in itself. It's not necessarily on the sculptor's vocabulary of materials. And at the same time, you've, you've got them looking at a, a material that has all these other connotations, which are very negative. So that's an example. And the same with buildings. We tend to think of architecture as a very static mm. uh, uh, object. Uh, and if you can animate architecture in some kind of way, you actually actually understand that architecture is actually a very slow-moving event in that our cityscapes are constantly being torn down and rebuilt. And so if you had a camera running for 100 years, you'd have a very interesting movie of de demolition and resurrection. And I hover somewhere in that about how architecture isn't this static thing. And it's not sacrosanct. You can tamper with it if given the right permissions. And you can spin buildings. I was wondering which are your influences mainly. So I, I saw many uh, reference to uh, Gordon Mata Clark and an architecture Le Corbusier and um, an Arte Povera, I could say, because you usually use existing objects or buildings to, to, to alter them. So which are your main influences? Yeah, I mean, it's almost if you sort of came to my house and looked at my library, you'd see that the books aren't in any order. And it's the same with sort of, uh, I suppose, with influences. It's not going to be a list of artists necessarily, other artists. I mean, it's Endeavour, Speed, uh, musicians, uh, all sorts of people who have tackled challenges and succeeded or not or not necessarily su succeeded or overcome but have, uh, have taken on the challenge i mean donald campbell for instance is one of my heroes uh you could say that he failed but i don't think he did i think they should have the mangled uh bluebird uh pre its rebuild it has now been rebuilt but i always said it should have gone on the fourth plinth as a statement of endeavor you know, that you take on challenges. It would have been an extraordinary piece to have had. Just a mangled bit of metal. But what it resonates was fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, I watch MotoGP. There's a lot of people there that I like to have as uh, my heroes as well because of their achievements. But in art, yeah, art over. I mean, it's a shame that we've just lost Cornelis, but he was a fantastic artist. Yeah. And the rawness of material, the way he didn't actually embellish and play too much with surface, he just took raw substance you know natural substance steel coal tar um you could say they would be an influence in the way they're un 
untouched and untampered with and unaltered. And I like that sort of sense of directness and rawness. Yeah, it's interesting you both mention Art Povera, because on the, on the one hand, you're using recycled materials or everyday materials, or even just enlisting space itself as the material. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, th there's been pieces, and you could say cons uh, uh, commercially, they're, they're quite challenging, but where the sculptures actually enlisted parts of the building as part of the works. Well, how do you sell that? Well, it, it wasn't a question that came up in my head. That's you know? the other side, because <laughs> on the other hand, it's the most extravagant, lavish art there is. So that... that Dichotomy is an interesting thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's not one that one follows all the time, but I, I think it's very much one works with what's given. I mean, if you go to if you're if you are given the situation and you know that you could probably push the parameters of what you are allowed to do, that's possible. I have to say that museums are more restrictive than open, uh, in that they, I suppose we mentioned it earlier, you know, that they are sort of sacrosanct. You can't sort of just go undoing floors and that sort of thing. You can't be the mad axeman going in and challenging. And it, at the other hand, I don't want to be someone that I was viewed once upon a time in the press as being someone who was aggressive towards architecture. Everything I actually do is sensitively choreographed and it's worked out painstakingly and fine-tuned to the nth degree so that it actually works for me very well. It, and that one isn't there for attacking. It's not a sort of a, a violent act of undoing. It's actually just a very sens uh, sensitively choreographed act of undoing. What is the dirty truth in the arts for you? What is the dirty truth? The dirty truth is a band, actually. It's a bit like the 39 Steps, isn't it? The dirty truth is a band, and I'm a big fan of the band. <laughs> okay, let's go to dirty truth then.
sinking sound Fall to your knees and begin to pray For darkness to take you away wondering whether you have done any pieces and works that incorporate music very interesting yeah I did a very big sound piece many years ago um, one of the first of the big sound pieces as, as sculpture it was for a big national exhibition TSWA 3d and I had the Tyne Bridge in Newcastle and I had one of the footings of the tower bridge of, of uh, the Tyne bridge and I suspended 1200 car parts and that includes engines, bodywork, and over a period of five weeks, a machine with a blade on it seesawed through all the 1,200 strings or ropes that were holding the pieces up, approximately 40 pieces a day, and the audience would go into a cage, and they'd be amongst it, and it would just crash down around them. And what happened on the first day, those 40 sounds were recorded, and they were played back as recording on the second day, as the next 40 fell, and so it was a cumulative. So it started off as a very visual experience, but ended up as a completely acoustical experience, so that on the last day there'd be about approximately 40 pieces in the ceiling, with 1,160 pieces on the floor, but with all this recorded sound. It but sounds that, like a war. <laughs> well, no, it's just, it's just me it's meaningful utterance. It's just coming from a different organisation. You know, it's not an instrument, but yes, it does make sound, and it comes from my background as one of the three members of the Bo Gamelan Ensemble that operated through the 80s where mm. we it basically was a, a sound and light experience it wasn't theatre it was we were making sound but number one we were making our own instruments which is interesting because no one can tell you how to play them if I picked up a, a violin people it, I'm, I'm picking up history and people will say oh you played that badly but if I'm playing an arc welder <laughs> uh, and a beer barrel. No one can tell me I'm playing it wrong. So that was wonderful. And I think we were looking at the ergonomics of instruments. I mean, I'd, nothing that we did was amplified. It was all natural acoustic, which became a very interesting sculptural debate because how do you fill Wembley Stadium with a sound if you don't have amplification? Well, you can do it through explosions, and we worked a lot with pyrotechnical, uh, 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 you know, fast oscillation of chemicals to, cr to create sound whistles bangs taps that kind of thing the other thing is steam is very good and i still blow steam whistles and still organizing big big concerts for steam whistles i know the the gentleman who owns the largest collection in the world and i have free access and next year we're blowing the mauritanias for him on the river thames we hope I'm just imagining health and safety officers across the land with their heads in their hands thinking yeah. about all this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they need testing, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I think it's about pushing limits, though. I mean, otherwise, what happens is your world gets wrapped up in cotton wool. And I mean, the, the, the thing about health and safety, what is unsafe is unfamiliarity. And if you're unfamiliar with your world uh, and you're not allowed to do things, you don't learn. You don't know how to cross a road if you're not if you're not told how to. and You don't try it. And the more we try what we're not allowed to necessarily do with common sense, um, the more we're going to understand our world and, and it's going to be a safer place. I think, you know, to stop us doing too much when common sense, you know, I mean, this whole argument about they're going to get rid of ladders, you know, I mean, what's wrong with a ladder? <laughs> but you use this, of course, like the appearance of danger helps you sometimes. So I'm from near Liverpool and that piece that you did turning the place over, which is a great name, by the way, cutting a, a, a 10 metre disc out of the concrete facade of an unused building. Now, that looks dangerous. Absolutely. I think it's part of the, the clever aspect of catching an audience. I mean, it's a sleight of hand, basically. If you think of, uh, you know, what happens in theatre when the, the lady is sawn in half, that kind of thing. You know, it's like, oh, my God. Now, as an artist, if I can do that, uh, it's, it comes under the title of spectacle. If you can make something a more of a spectacle and you play with structural daring, uh, you know, people go, oh, my God, look at that coach teetering. Look at that building spinning. But in actual fact, um, there's, a, there's lots of engineering theory thrown into these things to make sure that they don't fall on someone's head, that they don't topple off the building and collapse into the street. So they are, they are examined and tested before they're put out there in the public domain. Have you created any works that have a specific utility? Not really, no. I mean, I've, 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 done, I've been asked to think about stuff like that. And quite recently, I worked on very, a very small tabletop piece that was seen to have supposedly have had a function to it. Uh, in actual fact, what it was, it was a jug. And I just knocked the jug over and recorded it falling. And we made that form. You couldn't use it as a jug. So... In that respect, I've tampered, but not, not really. No, I haven't worked with that side of design. It's been very strictly uh, for itself, sculpture for itself. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Dr. Phil Good and Roxette, and we'll be back in a while with Richard Wilson.
Wilson, one of the works we've talked about already is the 2050 installation at the Saatchi Gallery. So I think lots of our audience will probably have seen that by dint of the fact that it is permanent there. So talk us through what that is. It's the room filled with oil, or or at least it looks like it is. Yes, it's a a gallery space, um, and it has steps down into it. And the concept is that you walk into a corridor, a steel corridor, and you walk out to a point where that corridor finishes, but at the same time, it's kind of enclosed upon you. It's tapered, and the, and the floor itself slightly, slightly rises. So there's a disorientation taking place, not only from the aspect of the corridor, but also that you are in an environment which is this perfect horizontal plane of reflective, what is actually oil, but you don't know, first of all, other than the smell. There is this industrial smell, the oil smell. And what you are experiencing is the complete reverse of the room you're looking at. So you're not looking at a sculpture. You're looking at the very room you've walked into, but it is actually turned upside down. And therefore, it is the negative of the room. But at the same time, it's doubled the room. So if you take the concept of the TARDIS, which is a police box, and when you open the door and you step inside, the interior is much greater, much bigger than its exterior. That's really the, the, the simplest concept to explain what, 2050 years albeit it is this viscous waste material uh, and people walk in there and some people have suffered vertigo grabbed the sides and had to be led out it's quite an extraordinary experience and completely psychological experience and although it's seen as being the ultimate site-specific insulation it could actually exist anywhere and has indeed existed all around the world it has it's been built now 10 times including northern iraq uh, at the saddam hussein red jail in Suleimania. um it's interesting. It's not site-specific. It's not site-dependable at all. And everyone has written about it as being a site-dependable piece of work. It actually can go anywhere as long as I agree where it goes. Well, that's, that's one thing I was interested to ask you about, which is what are the rules? What does Charles Saatchi own by owning that piece? I'm not quite sure what he owns. No piece of paper was ever signed. Um, oh, that's impressive. He walked into Matt's gallery. He saw that particular piece of work, bought it, and it went immediately to... Uh, the Royal Scottish Academy and was recreated and has existed in several variations at the same time. I mean, it broke all the rules. Because people would say, how do you move something like that? And you say, we break it up and make another one. And people say, but how do you do that? And you say, well, it's quite simple. You just make one more. What's the problem? So the fact that he always asks for and obtains your permission is a matter of custom and etiquette rather than any hard and fast rules or, yeah, or even so a handshake. No, it's just it's, it's etiquette. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I get people asking me if they can make, you know, if I can make one, I do. And then he will contact me and and ask uh, if I'd be interested in creating one for a certain museum or a certain space. So I'd probably be flown out to Japan, have a look at a site and say yes. 
and uh, it has actually existed at the Mito Art Tower. It's existed um, at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, as I said, in Soleimani in northern Iraq, um, various places in Europe, and certainly in various incarnations, incarnations in the UK. Because a battle that I've been very interested to see play out recently has been Anselm Kiefer and this show that's happening in China Absolutely. without his authorization. Yes, I don't know the ins and outs of that one, but I have been keeping an eye on that on Artnet. So yeah, he's, written, he's written himself out of that. My instinct is that an artist and an artist galleries shouldn't be allowed to choreograph the entire interpretation of that body of work. But on the other hand... An artist has certain moral rights to how their work is treated. So where do you sit on that? Well, that's true. I mean, um, the unfortunate thing about 2050 is it has gone through a little bit of a Chinese whispers situation where it's ended up, and I've been plagued by emails over the years, where Charles actually closed off the corridor. Um, So this is a bit of a Clement Greenberg thing where Clement Greenberg was painting sculptures, you know, (laughs) that he'd owned, uh, where... uh, you know, my my uh, take on the piece of work was that people should be allowed to experience the piece of work by going into the corridor. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, there was an occurrence where someone did get quite covered in oil. I believe it was a school child, uh, a school kid, and there was some litigation going on. And so Charles thought it best, having sort of five coach loads of kids going in every day, that that they close the corridor off well that dramatically alters the piece of work and you could ask the question is it any longer 2050 it wasn't for me any longer 2050 banning children is the obvious solution (laughs) (laughs) absolutely that's what jake and dinos said anyway it's it's, it's extremely important to have this effect of reflection and i'm going to make a perhaps silly question here but how do you deal with dust in a space well, and I, how you deal with dust there's <laughs> on a, this there's work. There's a practical curator <laughs> yeah. asking a question. <laughs> it's, I was very, very fortunate. It's actually self-cleaning. What the oil does is if there is a dusty environment, it will completely absorb the dust. Mm. However, that brings into play a saturation point mm. and it's usually about four years. And what you do is you plumb it in so that the tank is recyclable. You bring in a oil truck it parks outside it connects hoses to the tank it sucks the oil through it filters it and puts it back in so dust will fall on the piece of work but it's immediately absorbed but you'll get to a four-year stage it's approximately four years depending on the size of the tank it'll get to about four years and then you'll start to get a slight scum at that point you pick the phone up you bring the lorry in you cycle it round. so it's a it's house cleaning fantastic from housekeeping back to music and with richard wilson well
Richard, you are Professor of Sculpture at the Royal Academy, which, I mean, I always think sculpture perhaps isn't a wide enough term to describe what you do. But um, one thing I was very impressed with was the way you coordinated the summer exhibition last year. Thank you, yes. Talk a little bit about that experience, because that must be quite different to managing your teams, realising your artworks. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Royal Academy is run by its academicians, and each year they choose a coordinator. The year before me, it was Michael Craig Martin. He actually set up a very interesting model, I thought, where he put an exhibition within an exhibition. Um, and I had been, sort of, let's say, semi-headhunted for a couple of years, and I always used the excuse, you know, I'm far too busy, ducked and dived for a while, and then ran out of excuses. So I accepted last year. I found a slot. I knew I could do it. And one is given a lot of help in actually coordinating. Um, and I chose to put an exhibition in there like Michael. And my exhibition was, well, twofold, actually. One was a very interesting Japanese artist I'd met who was working with the detritus from the northeast of the country with that terrible devastation and the Fukushima explosion. And he was reincarnating objects that he just found. He would rebuild them, remake them as you thought they should be, but out of other things. So an example would be a sake bottle. It might have the neck of the bottle, but the rest of it was made out of old books that he'd found. So there was this interesting transformation. It was about the memory of lost objects and the memory of lost people. There was that exhibition of 12 works, but also I included a semi-political show of duos Currently at the Academy, we have a situation where you are voted in. You cannot be, you have to be nominated. You cannot choose to become a Royal Academician. You have to be nominated. And you have to be an individual uh, distinguished in your field of the visual arts. And I thought, well, let's see if we can change the rules here and get a duo in at some point in the and future. Have you moved the needle on that? Is that about to the change? Needle, the needle has moved, yes. yes. In fact, we have a duo, I won't say who, we have a duo currently up for a vote amongst others uh this coming fortnight so i'm not going to guess who that particular duo is but i do know that you achieved the coup of having gilbert and george participate in a group show for the first time in a long while absolutely gilbert and yeah gilbert and george don't do group shows very 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 seldom um uh i, I had a very good contact uh, who is the uh, chief sort of organiser, coordinator for the summer exhibition, uh, exhibition organiser, uh, Edith Devaney, and she had their details. She had met them. She knew them. We plotted. We went down and saw them down at, uh, down at Brick Lane and at Fournier Street um, and chatted them up. <laughs> and they said yes, and that was great. And what and did you, what did they you made a piece specifically for us. That was lovely. What did you learn about duos in general? Because you know, I always think working as a twosome is quite hard. I'm looking at Vasiliki now, and she's maybe agreeing. But um, <laughs> but it, you know, as an artist, you have a, you have to be collaboration is a must. Selfish, I know. But cl collaborating with a team is one thing. But as a pair, I'm, I, would, I, I would, that process is interesting. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting learning curve for me. I mean, I have never worked as a duo. I've worked as a trio in the Beau Gamelan Ensemble, and collaborative energy i mean if you took the the, the example of the Bo gamelan of anne bean uh the late paul burwell the percussionist and myself you, know, you could put almost at the time we got going you could probably put 70 years of experience together out of the three of us and i think duos do that it, artists working on their own have a very isolated experience sometimes and to have someone in the studio with you 
Well, you can say, what do you think of that? Mm. You know, I sometimes do it with people who help me out. I don't have a full-time team, but I certainly say, what do you think? And they might say something, oh, God, they're right, you know. And I think it's very interesting, and I don't think that one can actually... I believe in collective consciousness. I don't believe you've got the sole right on an idea and no one else can think it, and it's only mine. Uh, It's authentic because only I dreamt it up. I mean, people are having similar thoughts all around the world, and, and it's through conversations and looking at shows and looking at other things in your world that you get your ideas. You know, you're not an ostrich with your head in the sand. And it makes perfect sense to work as a duo. If you, if you find you can actually be with someone, either a, uh, a partnership, you know, say husband-wife or, you know, guy-guy-girl-girl, whatever, and, or, or, or a brother um, or two sisters or whatever. In fact, it's interesting. I don't think I've ever come across a duo where it's a brother-sister relationship. There's been like, you know, you've got the classic two brothers, you've got the, the two sisters, yeah. um, you've had got the some, lovers. Had some brothers. You've got the Richard husband-wife. You've, Henry, got the, you've got the together. kind of business partnership, you know, officially vice type thing. You know, there's all that, but never a brother and sister. I haven't come across one yet, let's say. Uh, but I certainly believe in it. I... I through a bit of a spanner in the works with the Royal Academy, because they then put a rule forward that we voted on, which was two or more can be voted. And I said, I'm not interested in the more, which kind of gets rid of people like Assemble, which has been yeah. unfortunate. My point was duos first. Let's see how it works. It does technically rock the boat a little bit. We've got to iron a few things out. So if you've got, say, 15 people working together as a team you can't vote 15 in you've it's too complicated so we need to walk before we can run but it's a very interesting thing and i really do think we do need to get into the you know 21st century with this and and get a duo on board but before going to the next track i have a question regarding the new technologies that was briefly mentioned before so we have and and especially in relation to sculpture so we have a, a massive increase in 3d printing uh, for smaller scale, but also big scale sculptures, is something that you consider in using uh, as a medium in the future? Uh, I already use it, yes. Uh-huh. I mean, I see all technology as a tool. It's no different to a Black & Decker drill. Um, you just got to use it uh, sensibly. You can't let it dictate to you. But what that kind of technology does is it's damn good at shortcutting, short circuiting things in the same way as a laptop is i mean i often wonder i mean i'm in that generation i mean i'm 63 now i mean i'm in that generation that came into sculpture having left postgraduate course uh and wrote hand lettered you know handwritten ink pen and ink or usually pencil i used always used a pencil because people would stop and read it because it's not in ink (laughs) um uh, and i've progressed right the way through to computer and beyond you know uh so it's interesting to go through that part of that progress over my 40 odd years in my practice is the uh the use of the computer for engineering where you can get instant hit you know you can you can i can take an airplane and put it in the virtual world and i can throw it and i can watch the shape it makes and i can do that once the engineer has programmed in the generic model of the airplane we can do that in three or four minutes we can start throwing it and you can throw it all day and you can find all sorts of conundrums out of that which are interesting yeah i, I love i love reading about the genesis of the slipstream piece when yeah. you, you tried a tub of margarine first yeah yeah well, that was, <laughs> well i come from the empirical world you know i heated i made a metal airplane heated up and dipped it into margarine a tub of margarine <laughs> and then the engineer said you know richard you need it and i said yeah but this is sort of i'm more democratic you know because once you get on the computer only one person's going at it you know you've got to be a bit careful but but um yeah so so like the 
current exhibition, you know, which I'm mentioning, the current exhibition at the Annalee Judah Gallery in town, uh, one of the, uh, two of those works, sorry, came out of 3D scanning, first of all, of a live situation, a facade of a building and a landing that leads you up to the gallery. And from that scanning, we put that model in the virtual world. We cut it and chopped it in the same way as you do that to cheese or a stone or a piece of wood in the studio. We cut and chopped it. So it's all sculptural activity, albeit in the virtual world. And we found the sculpture, and then you can actually put that on the machine, and you can CNC cut the whole lot as kit. And that's an interesting experience for me to do. I, like, I, I chose to do that. It came out of the experience of Slipstream, and I wanted to go down that route. Not for the technology, but it was a fast way of getting the show built. How long, and how it long gives, and how it gives, it gives a quality to the it gives a quality to those works, which is lovely. When can people see that show? So that show is has been on since the uh, since late January yeah. and will be running right the way through to the last day, being the twenty fifth of March. There you go. Not long left. Get down there. With Get your down there. Three more weeks. <laughs> if we were giving you all around our world. Uh, three buildings to destroy and reconstruct or redo or three objects what will you choose oh god and well I've i have another question because you've said you've said that you're not aggressive towards architecture and so i possibly destroy is the wrong word so yeah i probably see you as a lover of buildings so you know which are your three favorite buildings i, I will see it as a reconstruction and all alteration to be sincere yeah it's interesting because i've always said um i work with what's given and a classic example of that is, is if I, let's say, do a lecture somewhere, people say, what's the, f the, the most beautiful space that you've ever worked in? What's, the, what's your favourite space? Is it Tate, which I've never worked in, you know, but um, is it, you know, Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, Museum in Oslo? And I realise where they're coming from. They're talking about, you know, the pristineness of it, the white walls, the cleanliness, etc. I say, the best places I've ever worked in are the place that lets me do what I want to do. That's the best place to work in. I don't want to work in a museum that won't let me do what I want to do. And I usually found, um, sort of going back in my career, it's those spaces that the lost, the forlorn, the forgotten, uh, the written off. And a classic example of that would be where um, turning the place over exists. It's a disused building in Liverpool due for demolition, which gave me the opportunity to spin that facade. I couldn't have gone to a heritage listed building and said can I do this because from the outset it would never have worked so usually it's the places it's the cracks between things that I'm interested in well, as opposed to the you know the other spaces that's not to say I don't work in galleries and museums but I found myself doing stuff in basements on rooftops in hulls of ships uh, spaces that are kind of not seen as necessarily art venues but they can become that once you play with them all these spaces are in urban environments yeah have you done any in the nature I yes i have yeah yeah uh, i've always said i'm a urban artist i can only work in cities i can only live in a city I'm beginning to question that with london now <laughs> um but i actually was flown i was working in los angeles and i was flown to niigata prefecture in japan by a dear friend of mine uh, from Kitagawa-san and the region was dying and he had to he was given the job by the government which is interesting the Japanese government to find a way in which it could be rejuvenated and one of his ideas was a uh, a 10-year anniversary of, of artworks in the environment and I was working with architecture and I thought what the hell am I going to do this is not my venue I can't do this but I got the idea and it's one of those beautiful things that happen 
uh, sometimes as an artist, you get the idea in one minute, and it was on the flight back, and it was as sunlight came up, and you get that lovely curvature of the earth. I thought, I know. My house is in London, in Rotherhithe. I'm going to build a facsimile, a copy of my house, albeit a linear, it ended up as a linear framework, at the same angle as it stands in London. So when you go to Japan, into the countryside, to Nakasato Village Junior High School, at the back in the, in the sort of flat area, beyond the, just before the woods and the forest, uh, there is this house, but it's upside down, because it's standing at the same angle as it does in Rotherhithe. And it was all the engineers' calculations off the North Star that managed that one. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And it's been great to have you on today. Just what's what's enjoyed the, it. What's in the pipeline for the next year, couple of years? Yeah, well, there's plenty of research going on. There's a couple of projects that are um, actually hush hush for this year, which will be started. Um, we've got we've got most of the engineering done. One of them is a large piece, hopefully for London. We will be starting work after summer. It should go in at the end of the year. There's a commercial show happening uh, at Gallery Fumigali in uh, Milan for January next year. There's the potential of a very big steam whistle blow uh, for London uh, to do with Trinity Boy Wharf if we get it. So that's all in the pipeline. And we're trying to export that to the Middle East and to America. So there's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of little bits and pieces on the go at the moment, yeah. Great. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Richard Wilson. Thank you. Enjoy uh, it. For having you here on a Sunday morning. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Have a lovely day. <laughs>